prior to December 7, 1941, Japanese leadership was embroiled in a debate over how to handle crushing United States sanctions. They could either surrender to U.S. demands or go to war. The Japanese prime minister thought that the tension between the U.S. and Japan could be eased through diplomacy, and Japanese leadership was split between those who wanted war and those who did not want to go to war. Unable to muster the courage to advocate for diplomacy, the prime minister sought the help of Emperor Hirohito. Hirohito stood before the leaders of the army and the navy, and he recited a poem by his father. A line of that poem reads, In all four seas, all are brothers and sisters. Then why, oh why, these rough winds and waves? This poem was intended as a pacifist lament. However, its ambiguous language was interpreted as, an, a, as a fatalistic concession to war. Though many in Japanese leadership agreed that diplomacy was the way forward, none of the pro-diplomacy leaders had the courage to speak out publicly, and so Japan began making preparations for war. Further miscommunication between Japan and the United States meant that Japan never announced their declaration of war against the U.S., and thus Pearl Harbor on December 7th was seen as a deceptive sneak attack in the middle of diplomatic negotiations. John Tollin summarized this way, a war that need not have been fought was about to be fought because of mutual misunderstanding, language difficulties, and mistranslation. Miscommunication led to the U.S. joining World War II and precipitated the process that would result in the destruction of Imperial Japan. Have you ever felt the consequences of bad communication? Have you ever spoken a lie or an angry word that led to conflict? Perhaps it didn't lead to a world war, but it sure might have felt like it. And why is this? It's because communication has consequences. This is true in diplomatic affairs, business relationships, and legal contracts, but this is also true of the Christian life. Think about it. Someone used their mouth to tell us that we were sinners and to point us to the hope that's in Jesus Christ. It is with our mouths that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we ask God for the forgiveness of our sins. It is with our mouths then that we share the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus. But it is also with our mouths that we can destroy friendships, marriages, and churches. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. With our tongue, we can produce good fruit, and we can produce bad fruit. So how ought we to think about our use of words? Our passage this morning, James 3, verses 1 through 12, gives us sound counsel. If you would turn with me there. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Our main point this morning, bridle your tongue because your words have consequences. Now, if anyone knows anything about bridling, it should be us in Kentucky right around the time of the Kentucky Derby. You see, without a bridle and a bit, there probably would not be a derby. The bridle is all about control. Wild horses running through a valley are beautiful to look at, but a racehorse with a bit and a bridle 
is an incredibly powerful tool in the hands of a rider. So too, the tongue is an incredibly powerful tool for both good and harm. Because of this power, James begins with an exhortation for those who are doing the most speaking in the church, namely the teachers. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. Now, throughout this epistle, James has hammered the ideas of selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, and covetousness. In chapter 2, James criticizes the church because they are showing favoritism to the rich over the poor. The people in the congregation are trying to use the church for personal gain. This, of course, is leading to terrible fighting, which James lays out then in chapter 4. This striving after personal gain, this striving after covetousness, is leading to the brothers and sisters destroying one another with their words. And James locates the source of this fighting in chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. James characterizes this earthly wisdom as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The root of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is the pursuit of worldly desires, and that gives way to hypocrisy. Gospel fellowship is corrupted by selfish ambition. Think about what it would be like to be in a church where everyone else is using church for social or financial or personal gain. Church as social club, so to speak. Think about what it would be like to be in a church where you could not trust whether or not someone was nice to your face and tearing you down behind your back. Think about what it would be like to be in a church where everyone felt better than everyone else, and so the entire church would be characterized by everyone judging one another and speaking evil of one another. What would be the result of such fellowship? Division? Anger? Frustration? And those most tempted to use the church for selfish gain are those in positions of leadership and those pursuing positions of leadership. And so James begins by targeting teachers, and he, he short-circuits this, he cuts it out by exhorting humility, by reminding them of the judgment of God and our own sinfulness. You see, teachers are not the highest authority in the church. God is. And everyone, teachers, leaders included, will stand under God's judgment. If someone assumes an office in the church for the sake of personal gain or plays the hypocrite while in that office, even if no one in the church knows, God does. And we all will stand before God one day and we will all give an account. Contemplating these realities creates humility. Likewise, James reminds us that teachers are sinners. We all stumble in various ways. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian on this side of glory. But when fellowship becomes a show of how we all have it together or how perfect our sanctification is, we lose the gospel of grace. The Christian life is a life of humility. It's a life of continual confession, continual repentance, and the continual embrace of the grace of God as we seek to show others that same grace. Church is not based on being better than. It is based on the fact that we all stand in need of Christ's righteousness, and it is freely available to any who would receive it. 
Christian fellowship is not a community of the sanctimonious. It is a community of the redeemed seeking the glory of our great Redeemer. And true spirituality is exemplified in the humility of wisdom. The church is addressed by James. The, the church addressed by James thought that wisdom and pride of place belonged to the one who spoke the most. But James corrects them, pointing them to humility and good conduct. Fellowship and leadership centered on the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ exemplifies humility and loving concern for one another. Such leadership will create purity, peace, gentleness, mercy, impartiality, sincerity, and love. It creates a community that invites us to decentralize our own ambition to die to self and to pursue the redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. James highlights teachers here because of their influence, but the message of James is not, teachers, watch your mouth, everybody else, fire away. The section is actually unpacking something that James has said earlier in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice the language of bridling the tongue, which recurs here in our passage in chapter 3. Teachers should be exemplars, but true religion bridles the tongue. All of our words have consequence. And bridling the tongue is a distinction between true religion that saves and false religion, which does not. That true religion bridles the tongue does not mean moral perfection. Another way to say this, redeemed people speak like redeemed people. Redeemed speech is not perfect speech, but it is speech that is filled with confession and contrition over sin. It is speech seasoned by the knowledge that we are all sinners, that we all deserve the judgment of God. It is speech grounded absolutely and unwaveringly in the authority of the word of God. Warm-hearted gospel fellowship should be the hallmark of being in the household of Christ because we should all have our hearts warmed by the grace of the gospel. Central to such fellowship is how we employ our tongue. Therefore, bridle your tongue because your words have consequences. And those consequences can be very good. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace, which is our first point. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace. Discussions in Christian circles regarding the tongue, and perhaps this is just my experience, almost take on this incredibly negative tone, like it would be better if we just stopped talking altogether. But that is not where James starts. James starts with praise of the tongue. Look with me back in chapter 3, starting in verse 2. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. If someone can bridle his tongue, he is a perfect man. Now again, this does not mean perfection in the sense of never erring, but this means that he is perfect in the sense of mature, complete, stable. The mature are able to direct their speech to good ends, that is to love God and to love neighbor rather than self-serving. 
And James employs two illustrations. First, the horse. Now, we run the, the risk of, of missing the point of this because we have modern machinery. I don't know how many of you have seen a horse race, but I remember the first time I watched a horse race at Churchill Downs. I went with big, big expectations, and after about two races, I came away thinking, those are just big, dusty animals running about 45 miles an hour. Sure, the whole thing was neat, the feeling was neat, the ambiance was neat, but it wasn't Lama. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a Ferrari. And so our modern technology hampers us in this illustration. But imagine if all you knew was working with your hands. All you could carry is what you could fit on your back, and the, the distance you could walk was as fast as you could go with your feet. In that context, a horse would have multiplied the amount of work that you could do many times over. Horses were and are incredibly powerful tools in ancient times. Powerful, fast, strong. But for the horse to be useful, it had, it had to be conformed and guided by the will of a skilled horseman. A wild horse is beautiful to look at, but it is absolutely useless when it comes to transporting goods or pulling a plow. And so horses were caught, they were trained, they were bridled. The bit is a small metal piece put in the mouth of the horse attached to the rein so that you can direct the horse side to side or, or tell it to stop or speed up. This small metal piece makes the horse an incredible tool. Likewise, the ship represented the ability to harness the winds and the waves. Again, two incredibly powerful forces. We have all seen the devastation created by powerful winds, and now imagine the ability to harness that for the sake of human endeavor. This is what ships represent, and they make it possible to transport people and goods all over the world by harnessing these two powers. And those giant, powerful ships that we have seen, they're all guided to and fro by a tiny rudder, a relatively small piece at the back of the ship, which is controlled by the helmsman. And this small member makes it possible for someone to control this ship, again, for the sake of human flourishing. James connects the tongue, which is a relatively small part of the human body, to the bit and the rudder, because similarly, the tongue is an incredible tool with incredible potential. The tongue, when it is, when it is bridled and employed for good purposes, becomes a tool with the potential to build, to create, to give life. Remember, the power of life is in the tongue. Throughout his epistle, James highlights several different ways that we can employ our tongue for good. The very first that James highlights is prayer. Just turn back a page or two to chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Christian, the power is not in the prayer itself. The power is in God. And we have free access to him through and because of Jesus Christ. Your tongue can be used as an instrument of grace if you use it to pray for your brothers and sisters. This is start here and pray that God would give them wisdom. But pray for comfort for those who are mourning. Pray for peace for those who are in difficulty. And above all, pray that your brothers and sisters would find deep joy and satisfaction in knowing the surpassing love of Jesus Christ. And then watch as God answers those prayers. A second point that James highlights is the word of truth. Christian, use your tongue to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. We are brought forth, that is, we are made Christians by the word of truth, by hearing the gospel of grace. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, it is because someone spoke the gospel to you. Think about the consequences of that person's use of words. Think about the consequences of that person's use of words in your life. And think about the honor it is to be used of the Lord to see someone's eyes open to the truth of the gospel. That is the power of life. That through the preaching of the gospel, God gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. Again, God is the one who does it, but we get to be instruments of grace in the hands of the Redeemer. And so Christians speak the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, 14, or verses 14 and 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. People are saved because Christians faithfully use their mouth to speak the gospel. Christian, do you have a desire to share Christ? When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone who does not know Jesus? Does the glory of Christ season your speech even when you are with people who do not know him? A third way that James highlights that we can use our tongue as an instrument of grace is confessing our sins to God and to one another. Look at James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the beginning of the Christian life, is it not? O oh Lord, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. Our tongues go from self-justification and disbelief to declaring the goodness and the mercy of God and asking him for forgiveness. And then as we continue the Christian life, we continue to sin. There are private sins that we confess to God and perhaps discuss with a close brother or sister for counsel. But then there are sins that we commit against other people. Those sins should be confessed to God, but then we should also go to the other person and use our mouths to confess that sin to them to seek their forgiveness as well. Spouses, is I was wrong and I apologize without qualification or self-justification something regularly heard in your home? Or how about I forgive you without correction or follow-up? If we are humble before God and before one another, and if we honestly confess our sins to those affected, we will be healed or we will be restored in those relationships. Our relationships will be strong and our fellowship will be sweet. In this way, your tongue can be an instrument of grace as we confess our sins. And finally, this year, our theme is called the council, and that's exactly where James ends his letter. Verses 19, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As we seek to encourage one another in the grace of Jesus Christ, and as we speak the truth in love, we will be the means by which we all persevere in the faith. 
When our tongues are bridled by the word of God, they are incredible instruments to convey the grace of God to one another. Your speech can be used to bless. It can be used to create. It can be used to bring healing and restoration. But that will come out of a heart that is tethered to Jesus Christ and is bent on obeying him. Now, this doesn't mean that we should all only talk about the Bible. I would say we can all talk about the Bible more, and we should talk about the Bible more. But the question is this, Christian, is everything that you're discussing, are your words bridled by the words of Scripture? Or are there areas of your speech that you do not apply the Word of God? There is amazing power in the tongue. Bridle your tongue because your words have consequences. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace. But this is not the only power hidden in the tongue. Turn back to chapter 3 and the rest of verse 5. At this point, James hinges from the constructive, beautiful potential of the tongue to the potential for utter destruction. James writes, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is a small member. It boasts of good things and massive destructive power. Point number two, your tongue can be an instrument of destruction. Your tongue can be an instrument of destruction. James now offers a warning about the destructive potential of the tongue. The bridled tongue has massive potential for good, but the careless tongue can be a weapon of mass destruction. And like the good consequences, James also offers illustrations of the bad consequences. Look at the, the rest of verse 5 through in verse 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the members of our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue is like a small fire that can burn down an entire forest. Fire just burns. It doesn't consider what it's burning. It doesn't consider loss of life. It does not consider property value. Fire just burns. We have seen footage of rage, raging forest fires in California that were started because someone carelessly did not put out the embers of their fire. And those small embers have turned into a raging inferno consuming thousands and thousands of acres of forest, destroying millions of dollars worth of property and have even claimed human life. Just like that ember can burn down a forest, the tongue can kindle a fire that will burn families, friendships, and churches to the ground. In this way, the tongue stains the entire course of life. Standing behind this is Jesus is saying in Matthew 15 that it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, but it's what proceeds from, uh, that comes out of the man that proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person. As Aaron has, has emphasized, there's a direct connection between the heart and the tongue. The, the tongue reveals, and an unbridled tongue reveals an unbridled heart. An unbridled tongue is the tool of unbridled passions, and it will wreak havoc on the entire course of life. With the tongue, we have the power to ruin lives through lies and slander. We have the power to destroy relationships through hateful speech and gossip. With the tongue, we lie, we steal, we cheat. 
Can you think of a single divorce that was not in some way tied to, to words spoken? Marriage is ruined because of lies, because of an unwillingness to admit wrongdoing and ask forgiveness, because of an unwillingness to speak a kind and life-giving word rather than biting and hateful words. Even the phrase, I want a divorce, is a use of the tongue. These are words uttered. And in the church, how many churches have been ruined by unbridled tongues? How many churches have been ruined by a harsh or an inappropriate word spoken by a pastor to a congregant or church worker? Or by a pastor simply refusing to say the things that need to be said? By gossip, by slander, by false teaching, the tongue has outsized power to do harm, just like the smallest virus can wreak havoc not only on the whole body, but on an entire population, so too the tongue has immense power to destroy not only the individual, but also a group of people. Next, James points the tongue as a poisonous snake. Look at verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Many different kinds of animals can be tamed. But who in their right mind would bring a rattlesnake or a viper into their house and think that they can let it freely roam like a dog or a cat? Does anyone think they can turn a viper into fluffy? <laughs> Does anyone want to visit a home where someone is housing a free-ranging cobra? Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. But friends, when our tongues are, are unbridled, when our tongues give vent to sinful inclinations and selfish ambitions, rather than words steeped in the grace of Christ, we are free-ranging vipers. We have the power of destruction. We have the power of death lying dormant in our mouths like poison. When the tongue is unregulated, when it is fueled by a sinful heart, the tongue will spew forth cancerous venom and bring destruction. James's point with these illustrations can be summarized as a warning. Your tongue has immense potential to bring destruction and ruin if you use it as an instrument of unrighteousness. Therefore, bridle your tongues because your words have consequences. And James points us to a very insidious form of this, hypocrisy. Look at verses 9 and 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James, throughout this whole book, has his eye on the church community. And because of that, James targets hypocrisy. Nothing is more dangerous to church community and the individual Christian than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes in many forms. It can be saying one thing and then doing another. It can be saying one thing in one context and the exact opposite in another context. It can be treating someone well to their face and then tearing them down behind their back. Simply put, hypocrisy is two-facedness. And throughout the book of James, James demonstrates that hypocrisy is the enemy of true faith. Hypocrisy is the enemy of the church. It is the enemy of Christ. It destroys the Christian witness and it destroys Christian fellowship. It destroys our prayers and ultimately hypocrisy will destroy our souls. And why do we play the hypocrite? Friends, I've had to ask myself this week, why have I acted hypocritically in the past? And yes, I have acted hypocritically, and more recently than I would prefer to admit. And it was always for some sort of personal gain. 
It was always for some sort of personal advantage. I did the easy thing rather than the right thing for the sake of personal convenience. I did the thing that brought maximum personal satisfaction without concern for anyone who might be hurt by it. I prioritized pleasure and ease over faithfulness to God. We act the hypocrite when we think there is something to be gained, usually sinfully gained, by doing so, and that is always something for sinful desire. The root of hypocrisy is the pursuit of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And the tongue that gives vent to such things gives vent to the very fire of hell. When we are solely focused on getting our own way, we unbridle our tongues and we open the door to destruction. There are numerous examples of this in James as, as he writes, but let's focus on one. Just look at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. James writes, What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What a picture. James's description is a congregation full of people with unbridled tongues, with unbridled passions, destroying one another. The fighting has become so bad, so divisive, so hurtful, so hateful that he describes it as murder. And the result is the destruction of the church and the desecration of the name of Christ. Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy run at cross purposes with the work of Christ. If you would be a friend of the world, you will be an enemy of God. Jesus is all about his own glory and your good. And Christian, your ultimate good is not found in the pursuit of your own glory, but it is found in the pursuit of the glory of Jesus Christ. And good speech comes out of a heart focused on Jesus, bridled by his word, and destructive, uh, destructive speech comes out of a heart bent on self. In this passage, we also see that hearts filled with selfish ambition and covetousness hinders our prayers. Their prayers are not answered because they ask wrongly. They're asking for sinful things. Hypocrisy hinders our prayers. Any good thing that can come from our speech, any good thing that can come from our speech is subverted by hypocrisy and selfish ambition. Therefore, Christian, bridle your tongue because your words have consequences. Your tongue can be an instrument of grace or it can be an instrument of destruction. And James concludes this section with a call to self-reflection because yes, the tongue can be an instrument of grace or destruction, but the tongue is the revealer of your heart. And that's our final point this morning. Your tongue is the revealer of your heart. If you bridle your tongue, it can be an instrument of grace. It can be a wonderful tool. If you don't, it can be a tool of destruction. But either way, the tongue reveals what's really present within you. At the beginning of this chapter... James called anyone seeking the office of teacher to examine themselves and to be honest. Now he's calling all of us to examine ourselves and our use of the tongue because the tongue is revelatory. From, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what James is saying here in chapter 3. Look at verses 11 and 12. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is calling on his readers to examine themselves with honesty before God, to look at themselves in the mirror and call out what they see. If a spring is pouring forth salt water, what kind of spring is it? It's a salt spring. If a plant is producing figs, what kind of plant is it? It's a fig tree. The point is that the things produce things in accordance with their nature. The unbridled tongue spewing forth selfish ambition and boasting and falsehood is simply giving vent to a heart that is full of such things. The forked tongue of hypocrisy reveals whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And so, friends, have you been a hypocrite? Are you currently acting hypocritically? Are there areas in your life where you need to seriously look at your use of language because does it reveal a heart bent on Christ or a heart bent on sinful, selfish desires? When your kids watch you day to day, are they observing a Christian or are they observing someone who makes them go to church on Sunday mornings? What would your spouse say about your use of language? What would your closest friends or co-workers say? Luke 6, 44 through 45 has been a heavy emphasis this year at faith. And Matthew's account of this pushes it a bit further. This is from Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account of every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, I implore you, we will all stand before God on Judgment Day, and we will all give an account of every careless word we have ever spoken, every single word. We may be able to hide from friends, from family, from our church, but God knows everything. And do we care? How seriously do we take God? How seriously do we take God's opinion? James's point is this, examine yourself what fruit is being produced. But Christian, there is hope. God can intervene. God can change the heart. But that starts with honest speech. As James says, that starts with confessing our sins to God, confessing your heart condition to God. Don't hide, don't cover, don't blame someone else, but honestly assess the situation and ask God to change you. God redeems the hypocrite. God changes hypocrites. God can pull the backslidden out of the muck and mire, and indeed, God loves to do that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be made new. And friend, if you are with us this morning and you have never received the saving mercies of Christ, I implore you to turn to Him, because you, like all of us, will stand before the Lord and give an account of your words and your deeds on Judgment Day. And the bottom line is this, we're all in the same spot. We are all in serious trouble. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Even our most righteous deeds are stained by sin. There's only one person who never sinned. There's only one person who could stand before the Lord on that day without fear and trembling because he was spotlessly righteous, and that's Jesus Christ. And our only hope is that somehow we will be given his righteousness, that we will have a righteousness that is without spot, that is without blemish. And that is why Christ took on flesh and lived the perfect life. It was for the purpose of redeeming us from the judgment of God, which we deserve. 
And this is the good news. This is why we gather. This is our hope and confidence that when we stand before God, that we will not be standing there alone, but that we will have an advocate, an advocate who knows our sins more intimately than we do, and an advocate who will say on that day, his sins are forgiven. His debt is paid in full. Welcome to my kingdom. Friend, this hope can be yours. If you see your debt of sin, ask the Lord to forgive you. Ask the Lord to save you. James has labored to exhort us to bridle our tongues because our words have consequences. Your tongue can be used for destruction, but Christian, how much good can be accomplished when you employ your tongue in the service of the Lord and seek to use your tongue as an instrument of grace in the hands of our beloved Redeemer? And so now I will pray and then I ask that we use our tongues to sing praise to our great Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me.